I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. And today we're discussing album number 27 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Albums list. And this is The Joshua Tree by U2. Mike and I have a great uh, special guest here with us. A long, long, long time ago, when we were in our uh, younger years, we would run around together with a group of our good buddies, um, which included a guy named Phil Burkholder. Uh, Phil was good at a number of things. He could beat most of us playing pond hockey. Um, he he knew a bunch of people in our area. Uh, it was always good for a pickup game of uh, some kind of baseball in the backyard, things like that. Um, and he also knew more about the band U2 than pretty much anyone that we knew. Um, I'm pretty sure that I picked up the Joshua Tree at a garage sale purely based on the fact that I knew that U2 was a band that my friend Phil liked. Uh, so I owe, <laughs> I owe a lot of my musical appreciation of this uh, specific group to the guy that we have as our special guest here today. Um, Phil Burkholder is... Um, uh, a longtime friend and, and someone I'm really glad to have here. He stayed true to Rouge River Farms, a place that Mike and I worked in high school, and uh, he continued on uh, and is still there today after, I guess, I guess some time away, um, but, uh, but continues to hold down the fort there at that incredible sweet corn company that we've referenced a few times in the podcast. And um, we're really happy to have him here today. Thanks for being with us, Phil. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a good intro. <laughs> <laughs> what did I leave out? How, when someone says, hey, who are you? How do you introduce yourself these days? Oh, boy. Father? Oh, right. yeah, that's a big yep. one. Yeah, that, that might be the number one at this point. <laughs> but other than that, you're right. Uh, Rouge River and you too. There's my life right there. <laughs> Beauty. Uh, some hockey moves in there mixed in, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, uh, well, I still play, but it's a couple of clubs. Yeah, custom. That's right. That's right. Ben, in that yeah. intro, I thought you were going to mention that Phil's also a half decent drummer. Yeah. Boy, I should have led with that. Uh, Actually, a really good drummer, if I recollect <laughs> properly. I don't think we're talking about me anymore. <laughs> in fact, the three of us played at least one uh, youth group variety show in a band together. Um, oh, that might come. That might come up we'll later. We'll have to get to that. Uh, yeah. Well, so we're talking about the Joshua Tree today. Um, we were all born before this album came out, which is something that doesn't happen a whole lot on the Sound Logic podcast. Many of the albums on the top 500 list came out before 1982, but this one came out in 1987, and all three of us were born after that time. So this is an album that um, we've been alive for its entire existence, and my hunch is that this is an album that all three of us have known for quite some time. Um, the first question that we ask is, had you ever listened to the album in its entirety before embarking on this project? I think the answer is uh, a resounding yes for all three of us. Um, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna assume that. Um, but then I wonder if we can get into our preconceived notions. Now, this is a little bit harder. Uh, I can't remember the exact year that I first listened to this album. Um, 
But it's a struggle for me to think about a time before ever hearing it before. Uh, can either of you imagine what life was like back in that simpler time before you'd heard the Joshua Tree? Or is that uh, something that's pretty hard to even consider? I can because I, I think I came into it a little later than you guys. I certainly was around the music a lot just being around you and some of the other guys we hung around with because that was a, a very popular band and this was a popular album. But I have a couple questions just before we get any further. I have a couple of questions for you, Phil. I, you know, you are younger than probably a lot of the hardcore U2 fans who would have grown up, you know, in the been teens in the mid to late 80s and into the 90s. And I want to know, do you remember the first time you heard you two number one and number two do you remember when you heard this album and can you kind of take us through how you became to be such a big uh u2 fan i don't know if i can say the first time i listened to the album i know that i became a fan because of my older brother ed who was a massive fan and okay i remember I had a summer job, well, summer job. I worked on my farm cutting grass. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I got paid, but, um, and I had a cassette tape of Rattle and Hum. And mm. I think it's about, oh, it was probably close to 90 minutes, 45 minutes aside. And I would just listen to that thing nonstop. Um, so obviously there's a few, well, there's one track for sure from Joshua Tree that's on Rattle and Hum. Still haven't found what I'm looking right. for. And that would have been my first exposure to the Joshua Tree. Uh, I didn't actually, I remember being caught off guard when I heard Haven't Found uh, because there was no choir. And on Rowland Hum, there was, of course, the Brooklyn Tabernacle oh, yeah. Choir. Yes. It didn't occur to me that, no, they might have just recorded this in studio just as the band. Right. So that would have been my first kind of recollection. I don't remember actually listening to joshua tree for the first time but i mean rattle and hum joshua tree like it's it's the same same music essentially <laughs> the, same the era. band was in the same headspace that's yeah. right the same era um we don't need to go into it on this podcast but u2 has different eras of their music and joshua tree and rattle and hum would definitely be together and until they move kind of in into the early 90s and we get into octon baby which is which is a whole nother I think podcasts and episode if we want to go through every era, but, but I imagine that's the time when you're really, you know, you're, you're getting a little older, you're starting to buy CDs of your own and tapes and cassettes. And I imagine that's when you're really getting into the band in the, into the early nineties. Yeah. The first album I ever owned was Octune. Okay. And that was given to me by my brother, Ed. Awesome. Uh, but I'm sure the first 10 albums I ever owned were all by you too. <laughs> wow that's wow. cool no, yeah, no, that's awesome <laughs> I was trying to imagine uh, how close to 1987 I would have heard this for the first time um, I, I bought the record at a garage sale for Bruce Campbell Jantz uh, someone who who went to the church that all three of us went to at that time Yeah, and uh, he and his family were packing up ready to go on one of their many trips to Africa for, for mission work. And uh, I pulled out the cover. I was like, oh, you too. I've heard of that. And I was like, this has got to be like their most newest album, right? And and Bruce was like, oh, I'm pretty sure there's a few that have come out since then. Um, I'm guessing it was like mid-90s. So I was probably like six or seven years 
away from when this album came out for the first time. But it was the first piece of U2's music that I ever listened to seriously. I went home and the record didn't have any scratches on it, fortunately. My parents had a record player, also very fortunately, because I'm pretty sure they didn't have a CD player at the time. Um, and mm. so that was my introduction. And I, I think I was still in a moment in time where uh, pretty much 100% or pretty close to 100% of the music that was listened to in our house was uh, music that could be purchased at a Christian bookstore. So it felt kind of edgy, like pulling out a record, uh, you know, with some like kind of rockers on the cover that were dressed in black. And uh, I felt a little bit like I was doing something dangerous, bringing home something that it was bought at the Christian bookstore. Um, even though I had a hunch that like I could I could fall back on the fact that, uh, you know, the Burkholder boys listen to this over at their place. So it's probably not that <laughs> not that satanic. Right. Um, and and uh, I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised to find that I really liked it. But but all that to say, I think it was probably, you know, six or seven years after it had come out. That was my first introduction. So this music had been around for a little while. Um, but, you know, we were five and six years old, I guess, when this album came out. Uh, four and five years old, I guess, maybe. Um, somewhere in that that uh, that age, anyway. So we were pretty young when, like this, when this album dropped. Yeah, and again, I, I came into it, I came into it later. Um, but I do have, I do have a lot of memories around it, and, and most of it center around, around you guys and our group of friends. Um, uh, first of all, I'm, I know that Phil, your brother Steve, who's another really good friend of ours, um, had a cassette tape of it, and I feel like it just kind of traveled from car to car, like whatever car we were in, or it it would just turn up. And I remember even taking a trip with him years later, and I think the car I was driving, although this was in the 2000s, it didn't have a CD player, and he said, oh, I'll bring some of my cassette tapes. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we had Joshua Tree, and I think it was my 97 Monster Protégé, and uh, there's Joshua Tree on cassette. Um, and whenever I hear where the streets have no name, I remember Phil, you had a TV and a VHS in your, uh, your bedroom at the farm or in one of the rooms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember watching a documentary on the album, on the making of, and the guys discussing, especially the edge saying how difficult it was to get everyone to play the intro switching from three four time to four four time of where the streets have no name and and i still think of it every time i hear <laughs> the song on the radio and hear the switch there kind of like haha even they struggle with time <laughs> makes me feel a little better yeah. um and i remember also you guys had a drum kit in your living room with the piano and there was always musical instruments set up and steve wanting to play bass but there wasn't a drummer around you weren't around so he showed me he's like here here's how you do this <laughs> and so i played drums so that he could play bass because he wanted to play that song bold the blue sky so uh -huh. um yeah a lot of <laughs> a lot of memories of this music as i i came back to this part of my notes about four times because i'd be doing something else and then remember oh yeah <laughs> but this happened oh well everything seemed to happen with the same group of people i guess it was just a big part of our musical experience and growing up together we certainly played a lot of music at that point in time yeah I'm really grateful that this was an album that was so uh, formative in those early years because it's not just straight 4-4 classic rock. Like, it's pretty expansive. Um, it it feels like an Americana album in that there's some moments where there's some uh, 
more soulful, uh, bluesy kind of influences. There's moments where it's got a bit more of a, a southern twang going on, and there's like some, some pretty expansive, sweeping, uh, you know, ballad-like songs too. Um, I think there's a lot of worse music out there <laughs> that could have been uh, my or our early introduction to rock and roll. Um, this is pretty magical, I, and I think solidified uh, a sort of sense of fandom for music that's that's bigger than uh, than I don't know, just the, some sort of like more simple stuff that it, that was out there at the time. Um, and I think it solidified the the band in my mind as something to uh, continue to follow for many years. Uh, they're they're probably the band on this list of 500 that I have spent the, the most amount of years with and not just this album but uh, pretty much their entire record catalog it's um uh it's not a band that i uh, pay super close attention to anymore but it's certainly a band that i will listen to their new music when it comes out regardless of how well it's doing on the pop charts and, and you know make sure that i'm following even if they're not uh, necessarily priority number one for me and my musical tastes at the time and uh, I, I'm grateful for that. I mean, I think I think people get into a lot of mediocre music when they're kids, and for whatever reason, uh, I guess we owe it to Ed. Uh, we got into some some pretty decent stuff here with the Joshua Tree. Yeah, I mean, for sure. But the Joshua Tree tour itself was it was pretty scaled back, and part of that was probably because of the. the time they were in mm-hmm. and the money that they were willing to spend on a tour yep. but part of that probably also reflects the type of album that they had just made and they were promoting yep whereas you get to octune baby with zoo tv and like it was just an extra- extravaganza mm-hmm. and only a few and years later Mart, only a few years later yeah, yeah that's right octune was released uh i guess november of 91 yeah and six years later pop gets released and they literally wanted to just outdo themselves uh, the Zoom TV tour. So in the space of 10 years, you went from a fairly minimalist tour setup to something that was just completely over the top. Yep. Wow. And any if looking back, and maybe this is just revisionist history, but it kind of fits with, the, with where the world was at at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Like the Joshua Tree tour, there's a reason they brought it back 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah at that point in time in 87 88 i guess it just it makes sense with what they were doing with where the world was at especially you know united states politics well i think we could speculate too that uh technology for some of the stuff they did on the pop tour just wasn't possible in the late 80s um they were playing massive shows i'm sure it sounded great they were playing you know hundred thousand seat stadiums um mm-hmm but they didn't have the capacity to have a <laughs> giant mirror ball lemon that the that sort of moves <laughs> and the band comes out of, right? Or, or if they would have, it would have been like astronomically expensive and not worth their time doing. Um, yeah, they just wouldn't have done it. They, they, done they said it. after the fact that the Joshua Tree tour was where they actually made real money. Yeah, hmm. like I, I'm sure they had money after doing war unforgettable fire like they were a pretty big band by that point but they said real money came after the joshua tree because they constantly took all the money they had made from previous tours and pumped it back in mm-hmm. to getting you could say bigger but just to 
to further growth and development. That's interesting. We just finished reviewing uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and they're quoted as saying that that album, because it sold, you know, 40 bazillion copies, whatever it was, basically let them record lavishly for the rest of their lives. Like, <laughs> they just made so much money off of that. Yeah, it yeah. just allowed them to kind of coast as a band from that point on. Um, mm-hmm. Blessing and a curse. Yeah, I mean, they they sold 25 million albums of the Joshua Tree. I'm sure that gave them quite a gravy train to just do whatever they wanted from that point on. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. Yeah. Hence, Rattle and Hum. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> An album that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't have the credibility to stand behind it. Um, That's right. You know, the way it was released as a movie and an album and, you know, all that stuff. I think uh, you've got to have some credibility to be able to pull something like that off. Oh, yeah. And they got killed for it, too. <laughs> and they had the credibility. Yeah. Which is huh. funny. It's, it's a lot better than I think people uh, at the time gave it credit for but anyway that's also another episode (laughs) exactly yeah but i think you're right they kept feeding their money back in yeah and eventually when you do that it does pay off now they took over a year to record this album Mm -hmm. uh they started in january and went till i think november december of 86 and then we're still doing post-production in january of 87 Mm -hmm. so you take over a year to to make an album not only one are you going to spend a lot of money uh because you got to pay for all those people that are there uh number two hopefully you're going to have you know something really special if, or you better you damn well better uh, mm-hmm. after you spent all that time and and they certainly did yeah um but because of that like they put you know it's like putting all your chips in one pile putting all your eggs in one basket and that's the goal is that it pays off and fortunately it did and it paid off big and i think you're right it allowed them to keep they kept going right we see all the way up to pop they kept okay but the next thing's going to be bigger well that we got the cash now and the next thing's going to be bigger you you can't do that unless unless you unless you win right mm-hmm. yeah they won. Uh, so i think they won and they won big and you mentioned about the the tours how big the tour was this was their first tour where they started doing stadiums mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that is a that is a major in terms of just revenue, that is a major jump from doing you know five thousand, six thousand people, now selling tickets to one show to fifty, sixty, seventy thousand. That is a huge gap, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> and and a big increase in your in your revenue, right? Yeah. So you can do a lot more mm-hmm. um, by a few extra Bentleys. Well, I can already tell we've got a lot to say about uh, this band <laughs> and. Uh, I won't make you dig at the very end of the episode, Mike. I went ahead and looked. Uh, Joshua Tree comes in at number 27. Then we've got Octune Baby, Phil's favorite, at number 63. Oh, wow. Then uh, War appears at 223. Uh, All That You Can't Leave Behind, which we already referenced as their sort of early 2000s breakout again, uh, 280. And then their debut album, Boy, is all the way down at 417. Oh, wow. So we have got five opportunities to talk about you 2 in the um, 500 greatest albums of all time. And those are all on um, both the, I believe, both the, the original 2003 list and then the follow-up 2012 okay. list. So um, we keep sort of worriedly joking that there's going to be another 
uh, Rolling Stone top list before we're done with this project. And we'll see if all five of those albums stay on when, <laughs> whenever that comes out. But, um, but we've got some time here to, to get into Joshua Tree. And, and if we don't cover everything, we know that we'll, we'll have a few more chances to talk about you two before this project is done. Anything else that we want to say about uh, early memories, uh, preconceived no- notions, those sorts of things? I guess the only thing what would be, and it's a bit of a segue, Joshua Tree was originally supposed to be a double album. Oh. Um, yeah. It's supposed to be a double album. Uh, I don't know how the decision was made. Like, I don't, don't really remember that anymore. But I remember listening to Bono saying that, and a bunch of the B tracks that you can pick up from that time – Stuff like uh, Sweetest Thing, Spanish Eyes, that kind of thing. That was supposed to be part of the album. And obviously it got cut, and I think everyone agrees that it's probably for the best. They ended up with 11 great tracks, but yeah, kind of an interesting tidbit. So do some of those end up then on on Rattle and Hum, or... um... Is most of that just sort of scrapped as B-sides? Huh. Interesting. Uh, I guess we get them... When did they release the the greatest... They did a greatest hits, and then they... It wasn't the second disc, all the B-sides? Yes. Uh, yes. Well, is the B-sides from the 80s. So right. it yeah. would have been other, other than just Joshua Tree. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you, I'm sure you could just fire up Google and find oh, yeah. out the original track listing. Yeah. Um, but but interesting, and, and as we get into it, and this that is a good segue, Phil, as we get into some of the details, we'll see that there was... There were a number of changes, and it kind of it morphed and evolved over that year yeah. uh, that they were mm-hmm. that they were opening it. And so, um, let's do some details. And as I read them, Phil, if there's anything extra that you want to jump in and add to this, you go right ahead. We'll uh, All right. we'll, we'll plug it in there. Details, 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 details. Uh, as we discussed, this album was released March 9th, nineteen eighty-seven. So about. 14 months after they started working on it. This is their fifth studio album. Of course, I'm not including uh, Wide Awake in America on that. This is their fifth kind of studio recording. Um, all the lyrics on the album are written by Bono, and the music is credited by U2. So probably different combinations of the four guys doing the music. Probably mostly The Edge, uh, would you say, Phil? Uh yeah <laughs> my understanding is that the, that the edge would bring melodies and and tunes to the band at the outset of the recording sessions but they've they're all also known to to just jam and yes try to come yeah. up with stuff so once you move into a jam atmosphere like uh, to to decide who gets credit for what is <laughs> kind of impossible Exactly. And I think that that's different than some of the other bands we've talked about, Ben, where one person would just kind of have everything kind of ready to go. Yeah. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing this. And uh, yeah, I've heard that also and seen some of the videos probably that you own, Phil, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) you or your brother, Mm -hmm. where, yeah, they get together and and Edge says, okay, we're starting with this, but then they all contribute. So that's really unique. And I think that's special about you too Yeah, Mm -hmm. well. And pretty different than even a band like uh, the Beatles, where it's pretty clear that this is a Paul song, this is a George yes. song, this yep. is a John song. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a band that's pretty committed to saying it is you two writing this music and not uh, each of us going off on our separate 
uh, tangents mm-hmm. with each song. Mm-hmm. Right. Group effort. Um, it charted number one in the U.S. and in Canada and in 18 other countries, so very successful globally. Uh, certified diamond in the U.S., so that's 10 million, and worldwide over uh, 25 million since. So a very, very successful album, uh, way up there in terms of comparing to some of those other ones we've talked about. Um, and there's, there's there's a lot of other history behind it. So um, it topped the charts, as we know, in many countries. And in Britain, it became the fastest selling album in history. So I guess fastest to get to a certain point. Um, and they don't say what level but probably you know like a million or something like that um and i was reading on another article uh, and i like this line it took you two from heroes to superstars and they were heroes and they had you know on war you hear a lot of like political stuff so they were already really famous but this kind of put them way up on the next level this whole album it won two grammy awards for 1988 album of the year and best rock performance by a duo group with vocal and as they were creating the album, there were two provisional titles, uh, The Desert Songs and The Two Americas. And of course, this has to do with all the, the-, the th- one of the big themes in the album that I'm sure we'll discuss is the idea of America and the, the real America and the mythological America and what that means. Um, so those were the two kind of working titles. As I mentioned before, the the Joshua Tree tour was the first U2 tour that included stadiums. Of course, something that they would almost exclusively do after this, <laughs> almost only <laughs> stadium tours. Yeah, and it's a big deal when they say like, hey, we're going to do arena shows this tour. <laughs> like Everyone's like, oh, am I going to be able to get in? You know, uh, There's something uh, about the, the backwards version now where <laughs> it becomes sacred when they do something smaller. Yeah, small, like 20,000, <laughs> like way small. <laughs> um, yeah, right. But, and, and it is, and it is when they can fill, you know, a massive soccer stadium in Europe, no problem. Yep, yep. Um, uh, it was another album that uh, in 2014 was added, uh, selected for the National Recording Registry in the Library of Congress in the U.S., deemed culturally, culturally historically, and aesthetically significant whatever that means, <laughs> but it's saved in there. And um, we'd like to sometimes read something from the Rolling Stone 500 album list. And I took a little excerpt there. They say the band immersed itself in the mythology of the United States while the edge ex- exploited the poetic echo of digital delay, drowning his trademark arpeggios in rippling tremolo. And certainly that is something that we hear really come through on the album more than he had done previously. And I think you mentioned this earlier, Phil, that they did a 30th anniversary tour in 2017. And I read something. Are they doing another one this year? Yeah, I think they're in, well, I shouldn't say they're in the middle of it. Um, they did do another one this year. Okay. And they, they're, they're pretty good at doing something like this. They, they always attach some venues that they haven't been to either in a very long time or ever. Um, I forget the cities they hit this time, but yeah, they toured it. They toured in 2017, the Joshua tree in 2018 songs of experience. And in 2019, Joshua tree again, (laughs) not quite sure why, but, but that's what they did. Yeah. 
That's so fascinating. I mean, you just you just keep riding that wave as long as it's paying out. Why would you stop? <laughs> and right, I, I don't mean to be cynical about it, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure there's a bit of both. They're they're making lots of money, but I do tend to think that they believe in what they're doing mm-hmm. when they like, especially when they're bringing back the Joshua Tree 32 years yeah. later. I I think they feel that it has a place in in culture today and and has meaning you know to to each of us i guess we can decide that for ourselves yeah i i absolutely agree and i think it does and i think bono is a is a guy and i'm not saying it's just his decision but he's a guy who does things very intentionally and for a purpose Mm -hmm. and there's always Mm -hmm. something else there's always another reason to do something it's not just to make money or just to boost the fame he's got the money and the fame already he we could probably argue he doesn't really need it anymore Mm -hmm. um he's always got something else going on we know he's everyone knows he's a a avid activist and philanthropist so um, i think you're bang on there phil with the culture that this album really fits in to our culture again yeah not that it ever went away but i think that more than the let's say at least more than the other U2 albums right now I think this really fits in especially some of the political messages um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are very relevant today not to jump mm-hmm. not to jump to the gun there Ben no, but I think no, it's I like that. important to talk about it well I think in addition to talking about the uh, retouring of this album it's also worth pointing out that it's been reissued a couple of times uh, at the 20th anniversary of the album in 2007 there was a 20th anniversary edition that came out and i think um if the little bit of research i did is true that's where you found all those additional tracks that that phil was referencing the b-sides that that got scrapped from the original vision of the double album um, they were all included on that 20th anniversary uh, bonus disc uh, and then the 30th anniversary tour uh, included a reissue as well. So if you're a, a passionate fan, you can get three different variants, I guess, uh, three different times where it's been remastered, or two two different times where it's been remastered from the original version and uh, sold with some bonus features, whatever they may be. Um, and, you know, with any with any major band, with any major re-release, there's also the option to buy it with the bonus DVD or the bonus giant coffee table book or, you know, limited edition vinyl, things like that. So I'm sure there are dozens and dozens of ways you can buy the the Joshua Tree these days. Bit of an aside here. Unless your name is Neil Young, do can any of us tell the difference between the regular CD and the reissue 20 years later? <laughs> like seriously? Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I would be able to say that I've ever heard the reissue. And, uh, but I have tried to do those, uh, those sound tests where you compare the different versions of uh, mm-hmm. audio quality and I always fail them. So yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably with you there. <laughs> On, uh, okay. on that. Uh, I did read that The Edge uh, personally went over each track for the uh, remastering. So um, if you do notice anything different, then you have him to blame for whether it's good or bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just to follow up on our conversation about the 2019 tour. So they announced earlier this year that they were going to extend their tour that ended two years ago. <laughs> um <laughs> 
and so between November and December this year, they're doing a Oceania and Asia lake. So they're going to New Zealand and Australia. They haven't been there since 2010 and uh-huh. doing, uh, uh, two shows in Auckland and then six shows in Australia. And then they're heading to, uh, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines and India, um, to kind of round out that tour. So, I mean, even just looking at that, obviously they felt or somebody felt in their team that that was a part of the world that had been neglected and they wanted to do something for them. So, uh, yeah, sure. keep that, keep that going, keep that money train going. But, you know, I agree with you, Phil, I think there's a reason, um, you know, and that two years later that they would go do another leg. Uh, I think there's probably a, a bit of a deeper reason behind it. Mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. argue as well. Yeah. So the next thing, we talk about, and I love talking about this, is the album artwork, the cover artwork. And there's a lot to discuss on this one. And just as a warning, <laughs> I want to talk about not just the front cover, but all the other, the back and the center as well, because they're all kind of significant. To start off, so the cover on the front, the picture on the front, and I'm talking about the original LP, uh, it says in very small gold letters, the Joshua tree, you two uh, at the top, very small. And then it's kind of like a panoramic shot in the middle with mm-hmm. black on the top and bottom. And then, uh, you know, bordered with gold lines and the band is very iconically off to the left, a little bit out of focus. And this landscape behind them, which is the, um, this is in, Death Valley National Park in California. The The place is called Zabriskie Point. Um, and this is just one of the places where they did the photo shoot. I've got a lot of details here and I can just start reading them off. But do you have anything <laughs> kind of that you want to add, Phil or Ben? Um, you know, any any kind of fun points here? Because I'm sure you, you both know a lot about this. I referenced this when uh, I think on our Abbey Road album conversation, when we started talking about the ability to visit album image locations, we talked about you can still walk the Abbey Road crosswalk. And uh, in fact, it right. causes a traffic problem yeah. every day there <laughs> in this sort of quiet British neighborhood because <laughs> all these fans come and, and walk. Um, similarly, you can go to Death Valley uh, and and see this majestic yep. landscape. And um, for a long time, you could actually go and see the Joshua tree uh, of the album's title. Um, I had the somewhat unique experience, I guess, of visiting Joshua Tree National Park, which is different than where these images were taken. But um, when I visited Joshua Tree National Park, I made sure to have my iPod along to be able to listen to Joshua Tree in Joshua Tree national park and i was completely spellbound (laughs) like i'm sure that the friends that i was with thought i was just going to wander off and disappear because i was just i was in a trance the whole time and it made it dawned on me for the first time that was probably to late 2000 so like 20 years after the album came out it finally dawned on me that there's something about the majestic sweeping landscape um that was clearly in their heads as they were creating this music because being out in open vast expansive nature um the music just all of a sudden clicked for me for the first time um being around joshua trees was cool too and and you know 
actually being able to touch and physically see what a Joshua tree looked like after having just seen them in the album art for, for so many years was really cool as well. Uh, it was after the trip to Joshua tree that I realized that it wasn't actually, uh, a picture from Joshua tree, but in fact, a picture from death Valley that, uh, the photography that we're talking about, uh, exists here. Um, but yeah, I, I think all that to say, I don't think I fully grasped how much um, they were immersing themselves in American landscape when they made this album. It was not just um, music made in a vacuum and titled something because they thought it was cool. It's clear that they were in these landscapes thinking about um, these spaces when they made this kind of music. So yeah, just the side little tangent there. Well, that's bang on Ben because they, they approached their photographer and the guys who were laying it out and he went and scouted a bunch of landscapes in the U S like a week before they all flew over and they kind of drove around uh, death Valley and uh, Mojave desert and other areas just taking pictures and just doing shoots. They wanted it to contrast the, uh, a lot of the themes on the album talking about, you know, social issues, drug issues, urbanization, and a lot about very urban places. They wanted to contrast this with the very open, wide spaces of the United States uh, with something in the desert or these big landscapes. So uh, you mentioned the, the tree, the Joshua tree, I mean, there are many Joshua trees, but the one that they picture on the back cover that they're all standing around, that one, you're right, Ben, is 200 miles away from Joshua Tree National Park. And there is, it It uh, fell over, I think, around 2010, but there's a plaque there now yeah. um, that says, uh, have, you, have you found what you're looking for? <laughs> and kind of a hodgepodge of items as well. Uh, fans will make the pilgrimage right. and leave behind guitars, cymbals, um, other band gear, flowers, uh, you know, photo albums, commemorative items. It's just a growing pile of uh, fan junk in the desert now uh, around around the old branches of this tree that is toppled. Um, <laughs> it's interesting and it'd be fun to visit that at some point just to say you've been. Yeah. They, they were, um, I don't know, officially criticized, but kind of said that they look so serious on the front and in the center fold of the LP as well. And one of the reasons for that was because it was very, very cold yet, especially you can see on the, the gatefold photo or Bono's in a white t-shirt or tank top, they were told to take off their jackets to make it look like they were in a desert that was hot. <laughs> but it was like, if you know anything about the desert, you know, there's no moisture. So when it gets cold, it gets really cold. Uh, so they were freezing <laughs> and, and looked kind of miserable. <laughs> and that, that kind of explains it. Um, also, uh, the photographer was trying a panoramic camera, but he didn't have much experience with it. And that explains why in this shot, um, the guys, especially Adam at the back, they're out of focus. Um, no, he didn't intend it for that way, but he couldn't figure out how to use the camera. <laughs> but that's the one that they felt with them off to the side that they liked the most. Um, and in the, again, in the gatefold photo, another kind of, you can tell they're on the fly because I don't know if you've guys noticed uh, that picture of them, Bono with that white shirt on, in the bottom left, you can see a mirror on the, on the ground. Um, and that's a mirror that they were using just to 
check their huh. appearance before the shoot and they just forgot to move it out of the way. So there's still a mirror sitting there lying on the ground. But um, they do look chilly. You're right. There's a, uh, they, some discomfort going on there. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, they, they, especially on the front, they've got jackets yeah. on, like they're cold. Um, and in the center, they, you know, they're stripped down, but it was still freezing cold. Um, the tree, the Joshua tree, when they took the pictures was supposed to be on the front. That was the idea that they would, that that would be kind of the image because they kind of fell in love with it so much so that I mentioned they had a couple of their names for the album when Bono saw the tree um, and learned, you know, kind of the biblical roots of the naming of that type of tree by the Mormons years earlier. uh, Right away, he decided that's going to be the name of the album. So they scrapped the other two names and that was going to be the name. A lot of tidbits there, a lot of notes about, you know, kind of the creation and not just the artwork, but also how it inspired them. Because I think this was later in 86 when they did this photo shoot. So they probably took some of those ideas back to the studio as they were finishing the album. Um, And as we mentioned, this was an album because it took so long to make, kept morphing and evolving and changing to the end product. But again, another very iconic album cover, iconic image. And you're right, Ben, so much more iconic when it's a place you can go to, not just a headshot or something in a studio. You could go here. You could go stand on that ridge and take that photo, and I'm sure many people have. Should we mention that it was done by Anton Corbin? Absolutely. I think he ended up doing quite a few different uh, album covers for the band. And then he also went on and made a movie that I totally didn't understand. (laughs) <laughs> like funny. about you too or just no, 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 a no, different george clooney i forget what it was called it was terrible <laughs> okay <laughs> i digress no that's, that's all right that's like that's was that the american yeah oh yeah that's what it was oh terrible uh, <laughs> half of our podcast is i digress so don't worry about it yeah ben, you should cut that part <laughs> oh that means it'll definitely be in uh, but maybe that's what i wanted yeah <laughs> oh, yeah so he's done a bunch of u2's album covers octune baby rattle and hum war he's got a long list of album covers that i'm trying to pull mm-hmm. up. The best mm-hmm. of 80 to 90 wars okay so they yeah Most okay likely. yeah but, and very and you know a lot of those images are very iconic yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, not just the Joshua tree, but well, this might be a good place to take a break. Let's come back tomorrow and talk about the track. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.